Spill it as true stories told in front of an audience. Everyone has a story. Are you ready to spill it? Hi, I'm Josh Campbell, creative director of Spill It. Today's stories are from our Spill It Slam event, No Stone Unturned, held March 25th at Black Lodge Video. Our Spill It Slam winners and runners-up go on to compete at the Spill It Grand Slam in November. The winners of this event were Gary Blevins, Natalie Jones, and Frank Jameson. Gary Blevins, everybody. Good evening. So I've been doing something uh, interesting for the last few months. Um, my wife and I really enjoy uh, listening to audiobooks while we're driving. And our kids uh, live in just outside of Cincinnati with our grandkids, and we go up there as often as we can. And, and normally it's like sci-fi books and all kinds of different stuff. But I, I thought, you know, I'm in the mood for a classic. So we kind of went through a couple of them. I tried uh, the first two and a half hours of War and Peace and could not give a good goddamn about any of those characters. So I, we, and I kept falling asleep, so we put that one away. And so then we decided to uh, settle on The Count of Monte Cristo. And this audiobook is 64 hours long. But I'm like, we're gonna do it. So, as we pulled up today, we have 15 minutes left in this 64-hour saga. And it's been an incredible story. Uh, it is told way too long, but it's been an incredible story. So, the, so this is what inspires me tonight. Tonight, I will tell you my favorite revenge story. In 2000, I moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and I needed to change my cell phone plan because I had had a, my, my first wife and my son, well, I guess at that point she was my ex-wife, were living in Cincinnati and all my friends were there, so I was gonna need to be able to make more phone calls than I had. Now, for the young people in the audience, back in the day, you had to pay for cell phone minutes, right? Like, by, by order, right? So you'd have 200 minutes for the month that you'd pay for, and if you didn't, then there was consequences, right? It would become very expensive. This was a really stupid way to do this, and I'm very glad that they don't do this anymore. And I think there was actually a law that got passed, and, and maybe this is why. Because I moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and I called my friends at Sprint, remember that name, Sprint, and said, I need to change my plan from 200, excuse me, from 500 minutes to 2,000 minutes because I'm gonna be making a lot more phone calls back to Cincinnati, because this is where my friends and family are. And they said, no problem, sir, that's perfectly fine, happy to do it, and it was a, you know, however much more money a month it was. About a month goes by, and I get a bill from Sprint for $2,152. Apparently, the person that I said to change from 500 to 2,000, changed it to 200. And so when I ran up 1,200 minutes worth of calls, it was 25 some odd cents per minute after we got past the first 200. And I thought, well, this is obviously some kind of clerical error. I'm a kind person, I'm an optimist. I like to think of myself as giving people the benefit of the doubt, but when I got on the phone with these people, they were like, no sir, it's 200 minutes. 25 cents for every minute after that. It's in our contract. Wait, what contract? I didn't sign anything. Well, you said so on the phone. No, 
I said 2,000 minutes, and I'm sure that you record all those phone calls. Let's play it back, shall we? Three or four phone calls later, come to find out, sorry, the recording was lost. It's still 200 minutes. Needless to say, they stuck by their guns, and it was $2,152. And I said, you're not going to dime. I said, cancel my service right this minute. And this is when I moved over to T-Mobile, which I've had ever since. But they persisted. They continued to come after me for this two grand. And I'm like, no, I'm going to pay you for the, the, the minutes that I use. That's fine. But for the 2,000 minutes, in my, in my book, they owe me 800 minutes. Right? No. So I told him then. I said, look, and I, and I am not to toot my own horn here, but I'm a bit of a, a call center ninja. I've gotten apples to replace computers. I've gotten T-Mobile to give us brand new phones for mistakes that they've made. I, I am pretty skilled at getting these folks to do things that they wouldn't normally do. Sprint was having none of him. So I told him, I said, look, I'm not going to pay him. You. You're going to do whatever it is that you're going to do, but I can promise you for the rest of my days walking on this earth, I'm going to tell everyone that asks me this story. <laughs> and if I get the opportunity to take business away from Sprint in the future, you can bank on it. That was 2000. Over the next few years, they continued to pursue me for this money. It landed on my credit report, made it more expensive for me to buy cars, made it more expensive for me to buy houses. They sued me, put a judgment on, on my credit report, and I still refused to pay them. And I challenged it with whomever it was I could challenge it with. But they stuck to their guns, and eventually, after however many years, it fell off. I think it was like seven years or something. But I kept that ember. Oh, man. Mm. So fast forward. It's 2017. I get a job here in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, actually in Horn Lake, Mississippi. And uh, my job was to oversee um, a lot of remote site events. And uh, I had a, uh, about 250 or so employees. And 200 or so of them had a corporate phone that we gave them. And about half of those had a separate hotspot, like a Wi-Fi hotspot. Everybody knows what this is so that they could report their data back to headquarters so they, needed, they, so they didn't have to count on the event space to have Wi-Fi. So the second or third day I'm at this, in this job, the bill comes across my desk, and who is it from? Sprint. I'm like, oh boy. Now the company that I worked for was pretty change averse. So I went to my friends in accounting and I said, I want to bid this contract. And it's a $28,000 contract. So they're like, uh, well, you're going to have to find a way to save us money. No problem. So I walk over to Verizon. I call T-Mobile. I call a couple of other services. And I get the best quote from Verizon. I'm going to save us 10 grand a year. So accounting's like, go for it. And I said, OK, so what do we have to do? And I get all the specs, and I get all the details, and we get the new Verizon phones and the new hotspots in, and we send them all out to the staff. They send them all back. There was an option for them to send them back directly to Sprint. I said, no, send them to me. <laughs> so 
So I've got my office just full of Sprint crap, right? <laughs> Phones and hotspots and all this crap everywhere. And finally, I get one of my, my team, and we load all this crap into my car. And we drive it to the nearest Sprint store. And I walk in, and they come in with two big cartloads of crap. Cell phones, hotspots, all of it. And I said, here is your $80,000 worth of equipment back. Cancel our $28,000 a year contract, and you can keep the two grand. <laughs> Have a good day. All right, Natalie, everybody. So I am the child of a father who served in the military for over 30 years and has been a teacher for almost 20. So you better believe there are some life lessons that are happening and are being enthusiastically taught throughout my childhood. These three life lessons include no man left behind, uh, leave this place better than you found it, and be prepared. All of these life lessons can be learned and taught during the fun family bonding experience of camping. We camped a lot, and what this looks like when you're camping is no man left behind, we do everything together, together, all the time. Leave this place better than you found it. No stone left unturned. See what I did there? As we're looking for garbage that might have been other people's garbage, but better be believing it's going to find its way into the trash pan before we leave this campsite and head home. And then last but not least, be prepared means we are packing everything and the kitchen sink in order to make sure that we are prepared for storms, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, anything. We've got it. We've got it covered. So um, my parents divorced when I was younger, and we had the sacred document in our family called the parenting plan. So as a part of the parenting plan, my brother and I spent at least one week every summer straight with our dad, and we were in kind of the preteen phase of life, which I don't know what sounds more fun to a parent of pre-teenagers than to go camping. And where this summer my dad decided that we should go camping was in Florida. Good old sunny panhandle of Florida where it was 102 degrees in the shade. But we were all there together in our tents ready to rock and roll. So I am in preteen like life is hard. It's rough. My life sucks and no one can tell me differently. And my brother is two years younger than me. So in primo annoying little brother phase. So we are packing up the car, which is a 1992 Saab um, and the fishing boat in order to make our way down. We have been packing this thing for about 10 hours, ready to get on the road, saying, Dad, there cannot be anything, anything left in our garage, in the house, in our suitcases, nothing that is not in this Saab. But somehow we were. And my brother and I were silently rustling each other because whoever did not fit in the back seat had to sit in the front with dad and co-pilot, which means reading the map for the entire time from Nashville, Tennessee, all the way down to Panhandle, Florida. 
Adam one sitting in the back seat because he was the only one that fit because um, he was pressed up against the car wall because um, there was no other room. So I was in the front riding down shotgun with dad, um, reading the map, and miraculously we got there because I don't read maps all that well, but that's okay, we made it. So we make it all the way down to Florida. We step out of our bedecked Saab onto what I'm sure was actually a gorgeous beach inlet, but to me looked like a barren wasteland surrounded by salty water of no good nothing. So there is no trees, no nothing. It is a primo summertime in Florida, 102 degrees, but we see one lone tree standing in the middle of this inlet, like tent camp under the shade, perfect. This is where we should uh, pitch our tents. This is the perfect spot. So, you know, dad has everything mapped out in military precision on big tent goes here. I was finally old enough to sleep in my own tent. My little pup tent goes right next door, right there. We have everything laid out, perfect, perfect. Three hours later, we have a pristine tent and campsite all picked out and ready to go. So we're done. We are at the beach, so let's go enjoy the water. So we go tripping off to the beach, enjoy some time in the sand, time in the sun, come back. Oh man, it's gonna be so great getting into our tents. And I'm like, Dad, this is so strange. Why are our tents moving? Why are they moving, you might ask. You know what else loves the shade in Florida? Ants. And our tent was covered in ants. So much so that the whole tent, you hear them, as they're crawling up and over the tents, they are carrying everything away. They are all over our campsite. I hate, hate ants. Um, so no, no, no problem, no news. Um, Adam and I, and again, primo, preteen, we're going to problem solve this out, grab our tents, tear everything down, and then start running around the campsite, waving things in the air to try to knock off the bajillion ants that have somehow found their way onto our tents. So we have somehow miraculously beaten all the ants off and reset up our tents in the middle of this inlet in the blazing sun because the ants are smart and won't go there. So we spend the remainder of our week with our tents in the middle of the sun, in the middle of this Florida inlet, just smoking it up, sweating it out, living our best lives. Um, so all that to say, again, primo, like 11, 12, life is horrible, life is rough. I was not loving this trip, was not loving having to spend all this time with my dad and my little brother while all of my friends were doing the you know, amazing and wonderful things that I'm sure they were doing without me. Um, but we went on this, um, I don't know if to call fishing trip because I don't fish, but I just happened to be a boat while everyone else was fishing. And I remember laying down on my stomach on this boat and just like staring forlornly into the water and as we were like motoring to get wherever we were going, we passed over this crystal, crystal, crystal clear water. And at the bottom, you could see all of these fish and all of these 
things that live in the sea. And we passed over this fish that I kid you not looked like it was as big as the stage that I stand on. And it was just magical. It was this wonderful, wonderful experience um, that I got to experience with my dad and with my brother. Um, and at that point, I was like, you know what? This is not so bad. Um, and we had many, many camping trips similar to that, full of you know, misadventures and mishaps and things not going well, and it rained and our tent flooded and everything was ruined. Um, but all of those camping trips, again, with those three key lessons of no man left behind, we leave places better than we found it, and um, be prepared, really, as I look back, um, has kind of formed me into the person that I am today. And I can't be more grateful, um, even though I'm sure at the time I was not the greatest person to have been with in those moments. Um, but my dad is here with me. He has just retired from all of his service. Um, and I just want to thank parents out there that, you know, in raising your kids, you really do not leave any stone unturned to make sure that they have the character that they need to be successful in life. Um, so thank you, have a good night, and Josh. All right, um, it's my first time doing this. Um, thanks. I'll also um, give a little trigger warning. If anyone has like traumatic birth stories, this is either up your alley or very much not. Um, so, yeah. So Wendell Berry says that the first job of a storyteller is to say when a story stop, starts and when it stops. Because otherwise like stories connect to stories, connect to stories, connect to stories, and you end up like with two naked people in a garden. Um, so at some point you gotta say this is when it, uh, when it starts. And the other job is to kind of smooth out the edges, so the story is something that you can carry around with you and put in your pocket and hand to other people. So, for the purposes of this story, we'll say it starts at five in the morning, November 22nd, 2020, when my wife sat on the corner of the bed, touched my shoulder, and said, I think I'm in labor, and then burst into tears. Now, we'd been waiting for this for a while, like in addition to the nine months people usually wait for these things. There'd been a couple of weeks of fits and starts and back and forth, and almost and not quite, but it was, it was game time now. So we woke up my three-year-old and I got him ready to go to my sister's while my wife is kind of moaning and swaying in the kitchen. Um, and um, I take him, and when I get back, it's really game time because the doula's there, the midwife's there because this is peak pandemic and we had decided we're doing a home birth and not fucking around with hospitals. Um, and so my wife is sc screaming like a banshee, uh, which I've never seen before. And then other women and midwife assistants, and I'm not sure who else, all show up. They're in our bedroom. There's this, so for the next four hours of just absolute intensity, my wife is a superhero. They're surrounded by like a flock of competent women and me. Um, and then after four hours, she's on her knees um, on the bed and says, I think I need to push. 
So four powerful pushes later, a baby girl emerges and there's this, and everyone kind of takes a breath. And there's this one moment where everything is right and everything is good and everything's okay. But then the next moment, the baby doesn't take that second breath because she can't get the air in and joy turns to panic and the doula is telling us while we're kind of in the muck of what is and was my bed there and there's a baby who's struggling to breathe and the midwife is doing everything she knows how to do and she started to suction the baby's mouth and the baby's nose. Um, and that doesn't seem to be working. So we call 911 and, um, and it seems like moments later, two paramedics burst into our room and the first one looks at us and looks at the bed and said, I didn't know people did this anymore. And the other one said, oh, this is fine. I, I had a kid who was just like this. He's a seven-year-old driving me crazy right now. Don't worry about it. And so he starts giving him oxygen, starts giving her oxygen, Eliza, the baby, oxygen. But that still doesn't seem to be working. So we pack her up and we load into an ambulance. And I'm up front and she's a thousand miles away in the back of the ambulance um, with the previously confident paramedic doing chest compressions. And you think ambulances are fast, but actually they just get to skip a couple red lights while moving incredibly slowly. So we get to Labonner, and now it starts to come in flashes. So there's, we're in the NICU, and I'm, there are like four layers of doctors between me and Eliza, and, and I keep getting updates um, that I'm trying to understand that don't sound very good. And then my mom shows up, who miraculously or serendipitously is a pediatric palliative care doctor which is a lot of words to say she helps family and children when children are dying. And I'm starting to realize that that might mean me. And then we're in the elevator going upstairs and I'm next to Eliza for the first time because they're not these rows of doctors between us. And, and she's all hooked up with hoses and tubes. And then we're I'm standing outside the NICU room waiting for my wife to come because she had texted me before saying, what should I bring? And I, like, what do I need to pack? And I said, absolutely nothing, just get here. And so she gets there and as she turns the corner and sees that it's her little girl's room that's surrounded by doctors and nurses, she kind of gasps, screams and collapses. And so we get her inside and things are getting worse and worse and worse, and the updates are now about more time and options. And, they, it, and if it was a blur before, now it's a fugue state. And at one point they say, you know, if we put a chest tube in, we can reinflate the lung for a little bit, and, and that can give some more time. And I said, no don't put another hole in my little girl. 
And so I look at my wife and I look at my mom and they both nod without moving their heads. And so we take her off the table and put her in our arms and they start disconnecting tubes and hoses and wires and we sing to her. We sing, fear nothing, have peace till morning, heed no nightly noises. And she died. And her story ended. And then we did the horrible work of calling family who'd been getting disastrous text messages all day long. And they came in to meet her. And we handed around a dead baby because we didn't have a live one for them to meet. And then we had to say goodbye and go home. And we had to eat dinner and we ordered pizza. And then the next morning, the sun had the audacity of rising and we had to eat breakfast. And all of these stories kept going on. Except hers ended at 4.22 on November 22nd. And I don't know how to smooth out that edge. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Spill It. If you're interested in having an event or telling your story, reach out to us at spillitstories at gmail.com.